Our Old Testament text today comes from Isaiah chapter 40, 21 through 31. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Wasn't announced to you from the beginning? Haven't you understood since the earth was founded? God inhabits the earth's horizon. Its inhabitants are like locusts, stretches out the skies like a curtain and spreads it out like a tent for dwelling. God makes dignitaries useless and the earth judges into nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely is their shoot rooted in the earth when God breathes on them and they dry up. The windstorm carries them off like straw, so to whom will you compare me? And who is my equal, says the Holy One? Power for the weary. Look up at the sky and consider, who created these? The one who brings out their attendants one by one, summoning each of them by name because of God's great strength and mighty power, not one is missing. Why do you say, Jacob, and declare Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My God ignores my predicament. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary. His understanding is beyond human reach, giving power to the tired and reviving the exhausted. Youths will become tired and weary. Young men will certainly stumble, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will fly up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not be weary. Amen. Would you turn also with me this morning, if you have a Bible, to the Gospel of Mark? want to hear that Isaiah text also together with Mark chapter 1. The gospel reading this morning begins at verse 29 and goes through verse 39. If you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word with me. After leaving the synagogue, Jesus, James, and John went home with Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed, sick with a fever, and they told Jesus about her at once. He went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she served him. That evening at sunset, people brought to Jesus those who were sick or demon-possessed. The whole town gathered near the door. He healed many who were sick with all kinds of diseases, and he threw out many demons. But he didn't let the demons speak because they recognized him. Early in the morning, well before sunrise, Jesus rose and went to a deserted place where he could be alone in prayer. Simon and those with him tracked him down. When they found him, they told him, everyone's looking for you. He replied, let's head in the other direction, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there too, for that's why I've come. He traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and throwing out demons. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A few years ago, uh, a book was published by a woman uh, named Angela Duckworth that got quite a bit of attention. The title of the book is Grit. Um, kind of made its circles and kind of leadership podcasts and those kinds of things. As It's kind of an interesting way to think about this quality that is necessary in leadership that she was pointing out. This, this grit, this tenacity, this tenacious drive, this ability to overcome obstacles, etc., the book became popular enough and the idea of grit became popular enough that a few organizations tried to kind of create curriculum to teach children grit, right? We thought, this is a good quality. Maybe we should teach this to our children. However, so far they haven't really been very successful. Not because children can't maybe learn grit, but because we're discovering this. Grit is not something that can be taught. 
that grit is more earned than learned, if you will, this morning. That grit is actually only formed in us through challenging and difficult circumstances. And so what some of these curriculum writers realized is that they were trying to create fake circumstances <laughs> to try to get children to have to endure certain things in order to develop grit. And it just kind of came off like, like educational child abuse. I mean, like, it, just, you, you just, it was hard to create the right artificial circumstances for these kids to endure. The text for this morning, both of them, both Isaiah and Mark, come out of time periods where God's people are in the midst of really difficult, challenging circumstances. They're, they're grit-worthy circumstances. If you have your Bible still open to Isaiah chapter 40, we've looked at this text in the past. Um, in fact, the opening of Isaiah 40 is maybe one of the m- more well-known passages in all of Isaiah. It's known especially because Handel uh, uses it to open the Messiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. It's a passage of scripture that comes when the people of God have been in exile in Babylon for 40 going on 50 years. They have tried for a couple of generations to keep the unique Jewish way of life alive. And they've worked hard, and it's been two generations with not much of a future out in front of them. And, and now they're getting to generation number three, and it's becoming increasingly questionable as to whether they can sustain this unique way of life, where eventually the grandchildren and great-grandchildren will just be absorbed into the life of Babylon. And this unique call that God placed on them way back with Abraham and Moses, if that will just kind of end and come to naught. And so they have this moment where uh, there is not much of an open future, but God breaks in and speaks to them. In Mark chapter 1, sometimes we overlook how desperate folks in the first century were. They're in captivity again in Rome, a future that is largely foreclosed. The Romans will kind of tolerate their religiousness, but in terms of really having a dynamic, open future of blessing and goodness, They need a Messiah to come along and open up a future for them. And so both of these words and even the life of Jesus emerges out of a time of foreclosed future. And if there is good, in fact, not just good, but if there's great news in the text today, it is this, that God is the God who knows and has mercy and compassion on people who have a closed future. That God cannot stand, it breaks God's heart when he sees people whom he loves and have created who have no openness, no possibility, no future out in front of them except captivity and bondage and heartbreak. And so the good, the great news is that the prophet speaks up at the beginning of Isaiah 4 and says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. God is at work in this particular case. God is raising up a ruler, Cyrus the Persian, who will come and deliver us. Out of this bondage, God is opening up the possibilities of a future for us. And the great news in Mark chapter 1 is Jesus comes on the scene proclaiming that God has not forgotten his people, but the kingdom of God is at hand. And Mark loves to narrate closed futures in this kind of way, not just people who are politically trapped, but Mark loves to use sickness as not just kind of people who are sick, but people who have no future. They... They are not able to walk into the future, quite literally. 
or they are possessed or oppressed by forces that are keeping them from having a hope and a future. Or, in the very next text, or they are people who are, quite literally, at some level, affected by something that is eating their life away. And there is no openness, no goodness ahead. In this epiphany season, we've been thinking about, about the light that has come into the world and how that light overcomes the darkness. But all the texts in this, in this week, one way or another, relate to the fact that the light is there, but what do we do? What do we do when we're not sure if the light is going to extend into the future? What do we do when the light is hidden? We put headlights in front of our car on purpose because as we move into the future, we want to be able to see what's coming. What happens when we feel like the future is coming, but we can't see any goodness in the future or any light in the distance? Again, the good news, the great news is that God meets us in those moments of darkness and proclaims his life and his light and and in Mark, he heals those who are broken. He opens up the future for them. Amen? Like, this is great news. This is good news. And if I were a better preacher, we'd just stop right here. But we have some, a few minutes left. And, and the text actually doesn't leave us there. But begins to move us into a new kind of future. In Isaiah the breath of God, the Ruach that was there in the beginning, blowing the chaos back to where it goes. If you have the text still open, about verse 23 and 24, there's all this language of the breath of God, that the power of God, God is over all of the forces, including in this text, the political ones. And when God breathes, that breath of God, that text imagines that God did not just create once, but God is still recreating open futures. And the spirit of God that's a power in Jesus is healing people and bringing restoration, bringing freedom for people. And this is good news. I, I thought about text this week, like John 8, 36, who the sun sets free is free indeed. Or Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. If we had more time this morning, we'd pull the, the epistle text in for today, which is 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul is talking about freedom that he and the Corinthians have in Christ Jesus. But here's the thing with freedom. God gives us freedom from those things that break and bind and oppress us. And please hear this this morning. It is right for us to want that freedom. It is right for us to desperately call out to God for him to open up the future for those who are bound. But what we find at work in the text this morning is it's not just freedom from things that God is interested in. It is freedom from, but here is the follow-up issue, but freedom to what end? Freedom from that which binds and breaks us, but then freedom for something. Let me just say, I, I think for us as a culture in particular, that's an important question. We as a nation and as a culture are rightly, please hear me say this, rightly obsessed with the issue of freedom. 
We love to talk about freedom. I think if people were to think about America in particular as a nation or a culture, and could you describe like the core value of this people in one word, especially those who live in places like Idaho, what would it be? Freedom, right? Freedom is an amazing value. However, I would say one of the problems for us as a culture is that we have turned freedom from into a kind of idolatry. So that we are obsessed with freedom from, but we have little or no interest or ability to ask the follow-up question, but that freedom from, for what end? For what purpose? So in Isaiah this morning, The prophet is not just imagining that God is going to open up the future for them, but God is going to open up the future for them in this kind of way. Earlier in the text, when he's speaking comfort, he says he is going to bring his glory upon you. He's going to form you and shape you as a people then for his purpose, shaped by his presence. And here's the cool thing. All people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And in Mark, Mark has this fascinating way of so often narrating the lives of people who Jesus touches in this kind of way. Peter, so so Jesus goes to Peter's house with James and John, and they find out that Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And the first miracle in the text is Peter cares. That's my mother-in-law joke for today. Peter wants her to be healed, but then... Jesus heals her, but here's the fascinating part of the text. She is healed, and what does she do? She begins to serve Jesus. Jesus heals lepers, and they're restored to the community that they are a part of. Later in Mark chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus will call out from the road, have mercy on me, and Jesus will heal Bartimaeus of his blindness. And then what does he do? He gets on the road and follows Jesus. So that it is freedom from these things in order to move to something even greater. And so the disciples say to him, Lord, there's so many people who are sick and they're looking for you. And it's not for Mark that Jesus does not have interest in freeing people from their bondage. But Jesus is equally interested and what we are free to become part of. The kingdom that he is articulating. And so we find ourselves in these moments where, where we desperately need God to move and bring freedom. But not just for its own sake. But for inviting us to something deeper. Bigger. Transformative. I've been doing a lot of reading, and I'll try not to lose you this morning, but, but even before this, these last 12 months, doing a lot of reading on kind of spiritual formation in this present time. And one of the thing, themes that keeps coming up again and again in the kind of current time that we find ourselves in is, is how time has gotten compressed. Um, almost all of us feel like, and it's not just I hope that we're getting older, but it just feels like everything goes faster. And we're constantly speeding up. And some of these thinkers are saying, in this time where, where time has become compressed, 
there are a couple of things that become really important to us. One is, is resource. And so, not just in this moment, but always, people have to think about resource. Um, do we have what it's going to take to get through life and to accomplish what we are called to do? And so resource becomes important. But what's, what's interesting in this time period is it's not just money that becomes a resource, but maybe even more so time becomes a resource. Experience becomes a resource. So I don't know if you find this to be true, but every once in a while, um, first of all, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad target for telemarketing and people at my door selling me stuff. My wife just said amen. So if someone, if we know there's a salesperson at the door, we send her. Because she is much harder of spirit and colder in heart. I, I, yes, is my default position, right? But here's the problem for me, actually. I get in those conversations, and there's something in my mind that says this. Whatever you're asking for me in terms of money, my time's actually more valuable to me right now than the money that you're wanting from me. So could we speed this up to the end of the conversation? Right, are you with me? Like time has become this very important resource for us. And in time, when time is compressed, all of us sense the ticking clock of our lives and the kind of experiences that we want to have, but we feel like, like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Um, like sands through the hourglass, our life is ticking away and we're not, we're not meeting that, matching it up with the experiences we wanted and hoped to have with those sands, with those moments, with those that time, right? So resource becomes important. And here, if you're still with me, is the, the, the thing that happens. Not only do money and time and experience become resources, but we become, we become resources to each other. And so your value to me or my value to you largely has to do then with what I give to you in terms of time or experience and your value to me becomes either how you bless or benefit that or how you become an obstacle. And I just need you to get out of the way so that I can pursue these other things. But not only in this time does resource become important, but, but also innovation. So innovation is, this pre is not a terrible thing, but it's this thing that says, how do, we, how do we do what we're doing right now but only do it better and faster? Because I could use some more time. But the fascinating thing about innovation is this, 99% of the time as we innovate, mostly to get ourselves more time, we actually end up having less. So I'll just give you a quick example. So years ago, when the washer and dryer were invented, the thought was, this is great. We will have so much more time if we don't have to scrub our clothes down at the river, or if we don't have to wring them out, you know, with the wash tub and the ring. We can just throw them in the washer and dryer. Well, that, was, that seemed like a really good idea. But what did it actually do? Well, it elevated our standards of cleanliness. It meant we could own a lot more clothes than we used to because we, we now can, you know, run everything through the wash. And so what it actually did, according to a Harvard scholar years ago in a book called The Overworked American, the washer and dryer actually made us work more than we worked before. Here's the classic example. Email seemed like such a good idea. Now, I don't know who invented it but they should be exiled. But email seemed like such a good idea, right? Because in the past, when you, when you had to handwrite stuff or type stuff out and send it and put an actual you know, envelope on it and stamp on it and send it away, 
you could really only correspond with maybe four or five people in a day, and it took a couple of hours. It was kind of a pain and took a lot of work. Email made that so much more convenient. Think about it. Those four or five people that you correspond with each day, you can just correspond. That's not what happened, is it? So once it became more convenient, not only does everybody send us emails now, but we are no longer, when people sent letters, you could kind of say, well, I've got what? Maybe a seven to ten day window to get back to this person? And so innovation has this tendency to do this. It has a tendency then to speed things up. So that what we end up doing is falling into one of two categories. We find ourselves in this moment where everything's moving faster and we realize we do not have the resource to be able to keep up. And so what happens is we slip into depression, which is the primary psychological burden of our age. We slip into depression because the world is moving fast and all these experiences are happening and we just can't keep up. Or we end up keeping up but finding ourselves caught on this hamster wheel and just going faster and faster and faster as we're not depressed, but we're this close to burning out. Are you with me? Now, think about all that and then add a good COVID crisis on top of it. And what happens? What happens when people find themselves in exile? What happens when people find themselves marginalized like the disciples and the communities that Jesus came out of. We become fearful that we don't have an open future and we, we obsess about resource, objectify each other as resource. And we find the only solution we can imagine is just to work harder and work faster and the reason why that, those ideas seem to kind of resonate with me this week is because it feels like that's the cry of the text. The prophet is speaking to people who are just exhausted. Who even the one good resource they have, young people who should have a lot more grit than this, even they have worn out tired and are breathless and their resources are expended and the disciples who have been so desperate for something to break in they want to take this, this miracle power of Jesus and kind of turn it into a resource Christ do you not understand how wonderful this is Jesus do you not understand that this power that you have man we can draw crowds with this we can, like, we can turn this into something I love Jesus' reaction, by the way. This is the one time where I know Jesus identifies with my own struggles. When people come and say, there's a crowd waiting for you, Jesus says, let's go the other direction. <laughs> but Jesus keeps being drawn into the wilderness, drawn into the deeper thing. What are the deeper things? If you're taking notes this morning, let me just offer you this idea. In a time where we're desperate for resource, The text invites us not so much to calculate resource as to lean into relationship. It's not that resources don't matter, but the text begins this kind of way. Hey, Judah, have you not seen? Have you not heard? Don't you remember who this is that you're connected to? 
Do you not remember who this God is that you are in relationship with? Do you not remember the connection that you have with God and with each other? Jesus shows not as much interest in becoming the the distributor of healing as he is in being the connector of people to God and to one another, of bringing a kingdom. And in a time where we feel increasing pressure to to go harder, to work faster, to, to run with all of our might, to innovate as fast as we possibly can to try to keep up, The invitation is not so much to innovate as it is to be transformed. It is not innovation that seems to be the big, the, the concern for God as much as transformation is the concern for God. That we be transformed into something that is a reflection of his glory. I, I've been... I've been thinking a lot about uh, these last 12 months and about what we've experienced together and what we're continuing to experience together for who knows how long. And it got me thinking about um, a woman that I pastored in Pasadena. She's a woman in her 90s by the time I got there, and she was feisty, Ooh, about this tall. She was, she was an energizer bunny. She was feisty, grit. And every year, she would call the office about the beginning of December, and she would call and say, Pastor Scott, it's December, and I knew what that meant. It meant that somewhere around the 10th, between the 10th and the 15th, my executive pastor, Scott, another Scott, Scott, the two Scots were being invited to come up to her house for lunch. And we would always do this in December, and we would have this wonderful kind of lunch together, and we'd have a long conversation. And almost every year, the conversation went something like this. She would, she would rehearse the history she'd been a part of Pasadena first nearly her entire life. But she would start telling stories of her life, and especially of the challenges. She was a widow, the challenges that she and her husband faced as they were really young and early married, and... And as she and her family had faced, you know, this depression that had come through in World War II and all the challenges of all of that time period. And she would kind of tell stories about all the things that, that they lacked and all of the resources they didn't have in those days. And she would talk about all the sacrifices that they had made. But, but what I learned was she would tell me that for a couple of reasons. One was because... She was part of what Tom Brokaw kind of named and now has kind of been stuck with that generation. We think of them as what we kind of think of as the the greatest generation. A generation that, if I could go back to my opening story, a generation that had grit, a generation that survived a whole lot of upheaval. And she kind of wanted to tell me that because I think she was a little worried about my generation, that we're a little soft and gritless and that I needed a little more grit in my life. But... But I also realized about the fourth or fifth lunch that we had together that she was reflecting with thanksgiving for those moments. Now, please don't misunderstand me. She was was reflecting on 
the incredible lost people that she knew who'd been lost in the war, tremendous amount of grief that the community endured in those days, but she was reflecting on on how those, that period drew them away from just an obsession with a lack of resource into a connectedness relatedly. And how rather than just constantly working to try to make things different, she would reflect on, and for her, those were the glory days of the church for her. Now, initially, I thought, she thought they were the glory days because we sang out of the hymnal. Or, or because we, we did things that she felt like had been lost, and she just wanted those back. But the more I thought about her stories, the more I listened, it wasn't that she missed the practices so much as she missed that those moments, that time had become a period of transformation for her and for that church and for that community. And in many ways, she was grieving the fact, and this sounds strange, that there had not been days since that had drawn the church into relationship with God in that kind of way or had transformed them in that kind of way. So I know this sounds strange because she was a woman with tremendous resource late in her life and who was energetic. She's an energizer bunny, always kind of working and moving. But she kind of wished we'd have a good crisis. Not because she didn't wanted to worry about resource or wanted to work harder, but because of the gratitude for what had happened to her relationally and transformationally when God met her in that moment and day. Do you follow that? So the reason I've been thinking about that is because I've been thinking about um, what, will, what story will we someday tell? First of all, let me say Moments of crisis like this always bring about a recognition that for some people, futures are closed. Let me say this with boldness. God has a huge heart for closed futures. And moments like this don't affect everyone equally and expose the ways in which for so many people there are things that possess and bind and keep the future from being open. And we as God's people should absolutely be people who call for God to move and for us to lean in and open up those futures for people. But again, it's not just freedom from, but what is that freedom for? So if you'll forgive me for just a minute, I've been thinking about Sophie and about how someday, I hope that she is a, I don't, I don't hope she's a 90-year-old widow, but I hope that someday she's a 90-year-old fireball who calls her pastor, whoever he or she may be, and makes them come to lunch with her in December, right? For her to tell stories of the glory days when, when her dad preached the best sermon she'd ever heard in her life. But I was thinking about her and her friends as kind of a group that typifies this day in this age where her senior year got messed up, her senior year of high school, and, and her freshman year has been weird. You got to spit in something twice a week and turn it in, and quarantines and masks and social distancing and shifts in the cafeteria. 
But I hope someday when she is a 90-year-old fireball thinking about these days, that she will not remember them as a time where people panicked about resource and began to treat each other as resource and began to think about experiences that, like, as a parent, experiences that I know she's missing, that I wish she could live into, because they're the kind of experiences I had, and I feel like those are being robbed from her, and frankly, you're the one robbing her of them. Or where she lived in a community that was, like, so obsessed with freedom from they've forgotten that freedom from something is actually freedom for the concern and care of your neighbor. And I especially hope that she will have stories to tell, not about a dad who who burned himself out trying to keep all the juggling apparatus in the air, innovating in a time of panic. But that she was part of a people who learned how to lean into each other relationally and into God relationally and found not just strength to innovate, but found a God who was working transformation. I hope there's not another crisis like this in what I hope is her long life. I do hope that the God who is with us and understands how tired we are and gives strength to us when we need it is drawing us to him and to each other relationally in this time. And it's changing us so that when the future is open for us, it's not open for us just simply to be free for self, but it's open for us to have been transformed into something that resonates with the glory of God and all people see it together. God, help us uh, this morning. It is hard uh, to be grateful for these months, especially right now. We mostly just want you to move and make things new and open up a future that still seems pretty closed. But we ask you to come today and not just be our resource. We invite you to come and connect us to you and to each other. And we invite you to come and to um, to not just give us the strength to endure and to innovate change, but that you would transform us shape us. May you use these days to allow your glory to be formed in us, for new dreams to happen in us. And as we gather around your table this morning, we pray that this meal, that the bread would be a reminder of the strength you give us, and the cup would be a reminder of your love that transforms us. And so make us your people today.